pastors here. It's good to see you all. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 19 as we finish this chapter out. And uh, Robert and Daniel have said this and done a great job of communicating it, but I want to say it too. I'm glad the kids are in here. Now, you may not be, but I'm glad your kids are in here and they are not going to distract me at all. So do not feel bad if they go crazy, if you have to get up. Not a problem at all. So uh, glad they're with us. And, uh, and today, as I said, we're going to be finishing John chapter 19 as we continue our series, our mini-series, our final one in John, The Savior Who Succeeds. Now, most of you know that I came to faith in Christ as an adult. And before I go any further with that, I just want to say for those of you who were saved as children, I envy you, and I would trade my testimony any day for that. But one of the silver linings about getting saved as an adult is you can remember distinctly a time when you were a pagan as an adult, and then after the transforming work of Jesus Christ to save you. And I bring up one example that I'm ashamed to bring up, to be honest with you. Before I was saved, age 21, I thought abortion was a valid option for an unplanned pregnancy, to get out of responsibility. Thankfully, I was never in a position to, to, to carry it out but I truly thought it was okay. And I mention that because after, almost from one day to the next, after Jesus Christ transformed me through the gospel, through his power, I thought it was the most horrible, wretched thing ever, and I couldn't even believe I once thought it was okay. That's how real that transforming power was in my life. And I'm sure all of you who are Christ followers can come up here and share an example like that as well. And I mentioned that as we look at our title, it's actually above me now, our title for today's sermon, Transformed by the Cross. We have this unique opportunity in between the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection to see the effects the cross had on some people, on some of his followers. But before we get there, let's look at this great passage from Philippians 2. We've seen it so many times, it never gets old. And in it is a clear implication that the transforming work of Christ should have an effect, a lasting effect on those of us who are his people. Uh, Let's read this great hymn that, that Paul gives us. He says, Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here it is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right there, the description of what he endured has with it that clear implication when it comes to us putting more interest in in the things of others and not ourselves. So there we see it. And here is our big idea for today's passage. In between his death and resurrection, John recalls two powerfully inspiring responses to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And you'll see the first one I've called traumatic experience, all right? This is, and really we're looking at two stories, the piercing of Jesus' side and Jesus' burial by two of members of the Sanhedrin who were his disciples. You know these stories well. But this first one is the traumatic experience that John himself had as as an eyewitness at the foot of the cross. And and if I were to ask you, can you think of a time in your life when you saw something incredibly traumatic that you wish you could unsee but can't? Now, 
obviously John does not wish to unsee what he saw. He wouldn't be able to share it with us today. But when I asked myself that question, I thought instantly, as a fourth, fifth, maybe even a third grader, riding home on the afternoon bus, very long bus ride, uh, on Broward Boulevard, heading east to Fort Lauderdale, where I lived, where I grew up, and there was a traffic jam. And by the time our bus got up to the, the accident that was causing the traffic jam, I'll never forget seeing a woman sitting down by her car with blood running down her face and the top of her yellow blouse stained red. I'll never forget that. It was something that haunted me even as a young child. And I, and I use that to illustrate what for John must have been such an incredible experience to be at the foot of the cross, the only disciple we know of, of, of the 11, the only one we know of that was at the foot of the cross as, as Robert taught and showed us last week and seeing all that happened, all that transpired, including the piercing of his side, which we'll see here in a moment. In fact, join me as we, as we pick up the text in verse 31 of John 19. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so as we see here, we're on the day of preparation of the Sabbath. Now, two weeks ago, it was the day of the preparation for Passover. So John, which is it? Is it the Sabbath or it is Passover? And the answer is in the parenthetical where it tells us that the Sabbath was a high day. We know what it's like when Christmas falls on a Sunday. Maybe that's a good thing for you or a bad thing. I don't know. But what's happened here is the Passover has fallen on a Saturday. That was not always the case. The Passover changed with the full moon. But every once in a while, the Passover fell on a Sabbath, which made it a very special Passover, as you can imagine, on the Sabbath itself. And that's what he's telling us. And so as a result, the Jews, this is the Sanhedrin, they go to Pilate and they want the bodies taken off. So they wouldn't defile the land in accordance, again, with Deuteronomy 21. We've seen that before, right? And, you know, the Jews, the Romans tried to do whatever they could to, to, uh, to adhere and, and to, uh, to help out the, the local religions, especially with the Jews. So Pilate was, was uh, maybe not happy to do it, but he was going to do it. And as Robert taught us last week, the Romans didn't like to take the bodies off the cross, typically. They wanted to leave them up there as a message, especially in the case of insurrection, that, hey, if you're going to come here and try that, this is your fate, right? In fact, they would leave the, crucif the bodies on the cross for a very long time. I don't want to get into detail what that means. But here, the Jews asked for it, and the Jews would get it. Uh, so that leads now the soldiers to, uh, to perform a certain practice that sometimes happened. It was called a crurer fragium. And what that was, it involved an iron mallet to break the legs of those being crucified. You can imagine it. Maybe you've seen it in a movie. If you haven't seen the movie Risen, I highly recommend it with Ralph Fiennes. Excellent uh, movie that, that takes place and sees this as history. And it, and it shows that, what that, that process looked like. And you can imagine it, right? Uh, you know, if you're crucified, that, 
standing on the, the, the piece of wood at your feet was the only thing that kept you, kept your chest cavity open so you could breathe. If, if you lost the ability to push off, you're going to suffocate. You're going to have asphyxiation. It's, it's not going to be pleasant. And so that what hap- that's what happens. So it, it speeds up the death process. And so as you can see, they do it to the first guy. They do it to the second guy. And then they get to the middle. There's Jesus. And he's already dead. But just to be sure, just to be sure, one of the soldiers decides to run him through with the spear. And here's this testimony, this account that, that John gives to us, this thing that was so traumatic, so powerful, along with all that he's already witnessed with the crucifixion, the blood and the water rushing out of Jesus' side. Now, friends, there's been a lot of ink spilt by doctors and theologians on on what it like, what actually happened with the pier, with the with the spear piercing, like what it actually pierced to have water and blood run out. But that's not important to John. What John is trying to communicate is that Jesus was a real human, and he died a real death. Now, to us, we're like, yeah, we get that. But you have to put yourself back in John's world, and maybe you don't know this, but by John's day in the later part of the first century, there was already a heretical cult that was influencing the church, that was having an effect, doceism. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it before, but even the root of that word means it seems. And what they would teach is that it only seems like Jesus, or seemed that Jesus was human. It only seemed like he died. They did not believe that he was a real human, that he had a physical body. So John is most likely including this detail in such vivid description to help confront that cult that false teaching that was influencing the church. And it's amazing. It's amazing that back in their context, people had a hard time believing that a human Jesus really died. Because what do we face today in the secular culture but people not wanting to believe of a divine Jesus who really rose from the grave? It's, it's backwards. It's incredible. So that's why I think he goes into detail here. But more importantly, there's a spiritual meaning here too. If you've been tracking with us through John's gospel, blood and water have significant meaning. And many scholars believe that not only is John making this point of a true and real physical death that now, of course, will set up the resurrection, but also life in Christ. That's what blood and water are often used by John to symbolize in his gospel account, life in Christ. In fact, look at this quote by D.A. Carson. He says, the blood of Jesus Christ, i.e. his sacrificial and redemptive death, is the basis for eternal life in the believer. And you see some references. And purifies us from every sin, while water is symbolic of cleansing and the Spirit. So there's something else here that he's wanting to communicate and share with us in this experience. As he gives us this eyewitness testimony. But it, he doesn't just want to give us... Uh, his testimony, and by the way, look at, look at how he words this in verse 35. I, I love this because John now enters into his own account. We see him do this. We'll see it, of course, at the end of chapter 20. And this is very similar grammatically in what we'll see at the end of verse 20 where he gives his purpose statement for the entire gospel of John, that you and I would believe the gospel. And he's not just applying this to the, the piercing of the side, but all that we learned last week from Robert about the crucifixion, all of the scripture being fulfilled, uh, both with the garments and also Jesus' Jesus's thirst when he said, it is finished. And now, uh, where he's going to share more about scripture being fulfilled with the piercing 
of his side. And he wants us to know one thing. You have to really, really believe me. This happened. I saw it all. He's going out of his way in verse 35 to emphatically make the point that this really happened. And I, or he, saw it. In fact, look, uh, look where he says, and he knows that he. That's a double pronoun, much like a go a me, right? I, I am. He's saying he knows that he's referring to himself. He's referring to himself as the author that these things really happen. And there you see at the end of verse 35 that you may believe the gospel. You and I may believe this glorious truth. But even beyond his own witness, you see here he, he once again testifies to the fulfillment of prophetic Old Testament scripture. Not once, but twice. He says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, what do you think that's referring to? We've talked a lot about how John makes it very clear of the typology that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that this is the fulfillment of the Passover celebration happening at Passover. No accident in the terms of God's sovereignty for this time. And that is actually, it comes from uh, two places in Scripture, but probably the primary verse that John wants us to think of is Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 46 where Moses is giving the instructions for the celebration of the Passover. And one of those instructions was the Passover lamb that they were to eat. Its bones must not be broken. So John sees fulfillment here. Also, Psalm 34, probably secondarily, David prays that in his psalm and talks about how God protects even the bones of the righteous from being broken. And then we see another scripture fulfillment at the end there, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have Pierce. I love this one. This comes from Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, 10. And what's really amazing about that passage is Zechariah is sharing with us a picture of the end times when God himself will come down on the Mount of Olives. It actually says Mount of Olives, right? To, do, to uh, defeat Israel's enemies. And that's where it says they, referring to the Jews there, will look on him whom they have pierced, will believe will believe. Now here he's using it more in general to the Jews, to the Gentiles. It's a fulfillment of that. But there's hope here. There's hope here for the nation of Israel that one day when Jesus returns, there will be a movement of faith among the Jewish people that we should also continue to pray for along with all of the nation. So beautiful, beautiful account. Eyewitness testimony of John. And the cross, my friends, has changed him. Now, obviously, he's writing 60 years later this beautiful gospel. We know the cross changed him. But in that moment, if we could go back in time, standing there, the only disciple probably, male disciple, at the foot of the cross, watching his king die, watching his king pay for his sin, my sin, your sin, all the sin of God's children. What a beautiful example we have here. So in terms of application, here's another quick quote from D.A. Carson that I love that, again, captures the point of what John's trying to communicate here. The benefits that flow from the death of the Son are appropriated by faith, and the witness of the evangelist is giving to foster such faith. And that brings us to our first primary response. This passage, I believe, is calling us to make this same response of faith, to answer John's call and believe the gospel. And first and foremost, any of you who are listening to the sermon or are here today who don't know the Lord, first and foremost, it's for you. Salvific faith. And the word believe here is not talking about some mental assent, like, oh yeah, I believe that. It's referring to a life 
change of repentance and complete faith in the Savior. It's referring to finding buried treasure in a field and then hiding it again and going and selling everything you own to buy that field. That's the kind of belief and faith John is pointing us to here in the gospel. And in fact, he continues with this great eyewitness account at the beginning of his first letter. Look at this passage. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus Christ. But the invitation to believe isn't just for lost people, friends. It's for each and every one of us who are already saved. John is inviting us and, and reminding us and making clear something we talk about all the time here at TCBR, that the gospel is for us who believe every day, not just the day of salvation. I don't know about you, but I need to remind myself of the gracious salvation of, my, of, of the Father in saving me through Christ. I need that every day. I need to meditate on it and remind myself of it to help keep me in Christ in that identity. Again, we don't lose our salvation, but we can forget our identity and fall into a world of hurt. We need the gospel every day as much as we did the day we were saved. And I believe John intends for us to hear that as well. And, and listen, this is about lasting encouragement, right? This has been a hard couple of months, amen? For all of us, all of us have struggled and we know our brothers and sisters around the world have as well. With all that's happening, I even got out at a rest stop in Georgia yesterday and breathed in some of the African dust. I mean, when's it going to end, right? When's it going to end? This has been a crazy year. And because of that, we cannot find relief in distractions alone. We need the lasting encouragement that comes from applying the gospel to ourselves daily by remembering what Christ has done for us, what the Father has done for us, and what he is still doing at his right hand. So that is important. And here's another great passage I had to share with you. This is for us. This is for those of us who are already saved. Peter writes here in the beginning of his first letter, he says here it is knowing, that's it, that's how we apply it, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as a silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Great passage there from 1 Peter to do that very thing, to remind yourself and remind myself of this great gospel we have. And finally, before we move on to the, the final section of the sermon, we can't miss the obvious. John has given us an incredible example of what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ, to not forget our responsibility, to be ready at all times to share this glorious gospel we may not have been there at the foot of the cross like John, but we, if you're saved, you are a witness of the transforming work of, of Christ through the cross. I am a witness of the transforming work in my life and the life of others, and, I, and we have his word. Let us be ready, and if we're not ready, let us get ready. Let's sharpen one another and be prepared to follow John's example 
to proclaim the gospel both here and to the nations. So we're moving on now to the second scene in our sermon series, that these, these events that happened in between the cross and the empty tomb. And I entitled this, Ashamed No More. Ashamed No More. Pick up with me in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Look at this quote from Leon Morris. He says, Whereas the disciples who had openly followed Jesus ran away at the end, the effect of the death of Jesus on these two secret disciples was exactly the opposite. Ashamed no more. It's amazing the effect can have of even a loved one passing away to wake us up in some ways. This happened to me a year and a half ago when my stepmother passed away. It awoke in me this desire to, uh, to help my parents out, right, to honor them. My dad was still alive, as you guys know, and it reminded me of something I had always regretted. When my parents moved out of my childhood home in 1995, I was too busy to go and help them. Again, I wasn't a Christian yet. Almost. I was close to being saved, but I was selfish, very selfish. My brothers went, thankfully, but I was like, ah, I ain't got time for that. And oh, how I have regretted it, both in terms of helping them and even having some closure to my childhood. So when my stepmom passed away, I thought, man, second chance, second chance. And by God's grace and your generosity, I was able to go down to Florida like five times in 18 months to be there for my dad, to help him, my brother, move him out of his house and, and take care of him. And I'm so thankful to have had that. And I thought of that this week as I was uh, researching and studying uh, uh, this great scene that we're, we're looking at here. But here we have these two men, Joseph of Arimathea, of course, we see honored by all four gospel writers because of what he does. And here John alone tells us that he wasn't alone. Nicodemus uh, was helping him out as well. But just some other information, Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. Matthew tells us that this was his very own tomb that he gave up for Jesus' burial. Uh, Mark adds that uh, he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, and also that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And then Luke adds that he was a good and righteous man, and very importantly, one who did not consent with what the Sanhedrin did in condemning Jesus Christ to death. And of course, Nicodemus along with him, which we saw earlier in John's gospel. So here we have this man being honored, this secret disciple. And John's not throwing Joseph under the bus here. He's showing us what the cross has done to him. How the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, has changed this man where now he throws caution to the wind. Before he was scared, he was afraid of what his colleagues would think. He may lose his seat at the council. Not anymore. Who cares at this point? I'm going to honor. Because I didn't honor him while he was alive, I'm going to honor him in death. And I'm going to show that with what we see here. He comes out of the darkness and into the light. One of John's themes that we've seen over and over 
and over. And of course, uh, a council member is going to have better access to Pilate than one of the disciples. Now, uh, Roman law taught that they would give a crucified individual to the family unless they were guilty of insurrection or sedition, which again, is what Jesus was charged with. So the fact that Pilate breaks that law and gives up Jesus' body shows us once again that Pilate did not believe Jesus was guilty. So he gives him up. There's where we see Nicodemus come into the scene. Now look at this. We, we, we know about myrrh. We talk a lot about it at Christmas time, one of the three gifts. Myrrh was not that expensive, but 75 pounds of it really was expensive, and it was incredibly excessive. Incredibly excessive. The, the Egyptians used it in liquid form as the embalming agent uh, when they would mummify the dead. The Jews used it in powder form along with the spices to hide the smell of rotting flesh. But 75 pounds is way too much. And what John is showing us, again, reminding us in terms of theme, but also these men's devotion for Christ, is that they are giving him a burial fit for a king. Only kings had that much myrrh and spices used in their burial. So beautiful to see that. And again, see these men's worship and adoration of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So they took him, they wrapped him. Again, burial custom of the Jews. They took that kind of thing very seriously. And then in verse 41, it says this, in a place, in the place, again, very important, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. So here it is, the only place we see in the Gospels that the uh, empty tomb, the tomb that he would be buried in and would eventually be empty, was in the same location as Golgotha, right? We get it here alone from John. Very significant. Now, we find out a couple things here. One, they didn't have a lot of time. As you see in reading the text, uh, it was almost time for the Sabbath. At sundown on Friday, the Sabbath begins, and with it, Passover. They had to get this done quickly. So they were in a rush for time. They didn't want to look for somewhere else. The word garden there actually doesn't, you know, when you and I think of it, you think of our garden in our front yard. That's not what it's referring to. It's actually refer, referring to an orchard, an orchard that you would find on an estate, a very large plot of land, right, uh, that somebody owned. And again, we know this is uh, Joseph's own tomb that he's giving up for this. And so they go there to place the body. And it's, it's very significant. Think of the entire story of the Bible. Where did the fall happen? In a garden. Where was the price for that sin paid? In a garden. Personally, I believe same approximate location. We'll talk more about that as we get into Genesis, but I hold to John Salhammer's theory that Eden is the same land as the promised land. That piece of land, my friends, is so, so important. But nonetheless, we see the details here, and, uh, and I want to take us now to a time of application and, and point out some things that are very, very important. Uh, again, the first response with the witness, belief. Belief in the gospel. The second one, worship. That's the point of this. That's all I want you to see here. Look at the, the worship and devotion of these men. Look at the way Joseph leverages his position in the world, much like Esther, right, for such a time as this, to take care of Jesus in his death, to bury him. And we look at the gift, right? He's giving up lots of money. They both are. Giving up his own personal tomb, right? You see the care that goes into and the time it took for them to clean his body, to wrap it, to properly apply the spices. These men were showing their love and devotion. And no cost was too much. They were giving it all up. 
But I want to tell you something. There's another cost that we might miss in this story. Another cost. Do you guys remember two weeks ago why the other members of Sanhedrin would not enter Pilate's home? Because they would have been defiled, and most scholars think the seven-day defilement, which meant they couldn't celebrate Passover. They couldn't celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread all week. Anyone, any of you remember what the, the law teaches? It's found in Numbers 19, when a Jew touches a dead body. Defiled for seven days. These men were giving up the celebration of the Passover. And I guarantee you, friends, they didn't think anything of it. And what's so amazing about this passage, these two men were celebrating the Passover like no other Jew ever has or ever will. Because they, that night, that afternoon, spent time with the broken body of the Passover lamb. And no cost was too much. Take the money. Take my tomb. I could care less. I remember when I was in the Coast Guard, it seemed like every year I had duty on Thanksgiving, and I used to whine like a baby. These guys could think nothing of missing the past. And it was important to them. Don't miss that. It was incredibly important. And they were now defiled for seven days. And who knows what happened to them? They may have been kicked out of the Sanhedrin. I don't think they cared at this point. The cross changed them. And they would worship their Savior. And and they didn't understand. Maybe they didn't believe about the resurrection that was going to take place. But in this moment, these two men are worshiping. And John wants us to see that. Nicodemus, again, what does it say about Nicodemus? The one who came to him by night. What's John referring to there? Why did Nicodemus come by night back in John chapter 3? Because he was ashamed. He too was a secret disciple. Ashamed no more. These men came out into the light out of the darkness, and they didn't care what happened, who found out, or how much trouble they would get into. And what a contrast they give us with the other Sanhedrin members a couple weeks ago. This verse came to mind as I meditated on this. I love it. We've seen it many times. It never gets old. Also, Romans 12.1. Paul says there, I appeal to Appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God wants that same devotion from us. And my friends, 10% or whatever you give, that's, that's just the beginning. Total commitment, everything. Your life, your time, your resources, your love, and your devotion, much like these men demonstrate for us in this beautiful picture of this glorious burial of their Savior. Finally, I want to encourage us to pray. And we're going to pray here in a moment along these lines. But I want us to pray for three things tonight as we consider this. I want us to remember the missionaries downrange. Those men, women, and children who have, not just Americans, of all nationalities who have left home and comfort to go and take the gospel to a foreign land. Because we know how much this coronavirus thing has affected us. I'm sure it's exponentially greater for them. I know of some missionaries who have been affected. I'm sure you do as well. The ones that you love, pray for, and have their picture on your refrigerator. Right? We want to pray for them. But we also want to pray for two things for ourselves. One, the courage, like John, like Nicodemus, like Joseph, to come out of the darkness and into the light and no longer be ashamed to proclaim the gospel to others. 
or secondly, to worship and claim the name of Jesus Christ regardless of what it costs us, regardless of what it costs us. And we're going to pray here in a moment, but look at this final quote. And this comes from a pastor I do not know at a church I've never heard of, but I read his sermon online, and it was great, and he had this quote, and I loved it. This guy named Lee Becknell, Pastor Becknell. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. Either the secrecy will destroy the disciple, or the disciple will destroy the secret. Let's destroy the secret, if any, remain. Pray with me as our worship team comes back up to close us out. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for this snapshot of these two accounts that John gives us in between Jesus, your glorious death and your glorious resurrection. I'm convinced that John wants us to see how the cross changed both himself and these two secret disciples. And oh Lord, it has changed us, but man, the busyness, the stress, the crazy direction that we're all going, multiple directions that we're all going. Just life happens. And Father, we, we quench that transformation power sometimes. I know I do. And our prayer today, Lord, is that through your Holy Spirit that you would stir up in us such a fervor for your glory that we have never felt or seen in our lives that would, would be seen in our desire to go public with your gospel. To no longer be ashamed, but to, to come out of the darkness and shine for Christ and sharing this great truth that has transformed us. And also no longer being ashamed to, to proclaim the name of Christ and to wear that name and to boldly say, yes, we follow Christ. Lord, our world, our nation, Greenville County have never, has never needed a church like that more, I think, than right now. Let us be that church. Make us that church. Fill us and transform us every day through this gospel. And if any amongst us don't know you, save them, Lord. Help assist them in giving them that initial faith, that belief, young, old alike. Do a great work that you would get all the glory. And let us join these, these disciples that we've learned about today and never go back to the darkness Never allow the distractions and the busyness to keep us from this mission that, Father, we can't, we can't share the gospel in heaven. There's no more need for it. It's only now, only here. And Father, we also pray for the missionaries, continue to pray for the missionaries across this world, even in our nation. You know every one of their names, every one of your children who have courageously left home, have left comfort to take the gospel somewhere else. Whether it's alone or leading their family, we lift them up to you. I know a family near and dear to my heart has been expelled from their place of service and it has trouble getting into the new place of service. And man, I'm sure there's many stories in this room even. We know they're struggling. They struggle all the time, but especially now with what's happening in our nation with this pandemic, we just pray for your grace. That you would encourage those individuals, those families, those marriages, those parents, and bless them afresh and fill them and give them courage, provide for them, and continue to use them like never to, before to plant your gospel seeds, to water them, and to see many come to faith in Christ. And it's in that wonderful, wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.